This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good day, friends. Good morning. We have uh, as our guest Dr. John Ruer, who is the uh, treasurer of World Beyond War, and he's a Quaker peace practitioner and educator. Well, John, why are you visiting Dunedin and what will you do here? Marvin, thank you for having me. Dunedin is the last stop on a four and a half week tour that my wife and I are doing in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, starting up in Pahia, attending the Treaty of Watangi celebrations and visiting uh, uh, 10 different places, giving presentations, meeting people, and learning about the peaceful contributions that Aotearoa has made to the world culture. And we're talking about the mission of World Beyond War as giving a vision to the world of how we might abolish the war as an instrument of political and national policy in the hope that we can create a just and sustainable peace for the future of this planet. You're visiting a good time because um, they're talking about increasing spending on the military and when, at a time when housing and medical services are stretched. Uh, everybody listening to this can podcast this at oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and going to Community or Chaos. Could you tell us about a little bit about yourself and what motiva- motivated you to become a worker for peace. Well, Marvin, I was born with the sense of innate compassion that when I see human suffering or any suffering, it causes me pain. And if it looks like it's relievable, I am compelled to try to do something to relieve it. It's not a virtue. It's not something I asked for. It's made my life much more difficult than it might have been otherwise. But I have it. It led to me becoming a physician and I had a wonderful career in emergency medicine. But after treating so much trauma that people inflict upon themselves and each other for 40 years, I decided it was time to work on violence prevention. And the work for peace I do now, I see, is violence prevention, the prevention of further unnecessary human suffering. So could you tell us about uh, 
how the world beyond war was created and when? It was created about 10 years ago by some really smart long-term peace activists. The founders were David Hartsoe from the San Francisco area and David Swanson, who now lives in, in Virginia. And they founded the organization, formed a board, and it has grown over the last 10 years, expanding this vision into a global movement of people demanding for their governments that they finally have the peace they need to be allowed to survive and thrive. Could you tell me if you have a spiritual foundation for your work for peace and the abolition war, particularly in this time when the world actually seems like a slightly more difficult place? Yes, ab absolutely. Uh, it's it's uh, this inborn sense of compassion I had, I think, comes from, from well, in, in language I would have used much of my life from the love of God. Uh, I see God now as a manifestation of truth and love in the world. And anything that manifests truth and love, I speak up for and try to speak against anything that detracts from truth and love. Uh, war fits that category quite a bit. Everybody knows the first casualty of war is truth, and not many people in war feel the love of anything. Do you feel like the universe is a friendly place in at the bottom? Yes, I do. Uh, that That's my belief, that we are, we are designed for manifesting love and truth to each other, for helping each other uh, get our needs met in life and, and thrive and enjoy this beautiful planet and the wonderful people. Uh, this, this trip through New Zealand just reminds me how, how wonderful people can be, hosting us, feeding us, housing us, uh, helping us along the way. Um, and I find that everywhere I go, even the worst conflict zones, people are generally kind and want to do the right thing. It's been phenomenal to me to be in Palestine with people under oppression, to be in Ukraine near the front <coughs> lines, uh, to be in Haiti, and and see the goodness of people everywhere. Does it give you hope that um, the feeling that the universe has purpose and is positive? Oh, Yes. No question in my mind. Have, can you tell us a bit about where you've done work for peace? I know you've worked in Central America, Colombia, and places like that, and also in the Middle East and Europe. Can you talk about this for a while? Uh, well, yes, well, a lot of the work I've done is just in teaching teaching courses on nonviolence with nonviolent <laughs> communication, nonviolent action in countless uh, seminars over the past 30 years, um, being guest lecturer at various universities and teaching a couple of college courses at St. Michael's College in, in Vermont. Uh, so teaching has been very important. But as I learned the theory of nonviolence and what the alternatives to war are, uh, it's much more exciting to go into the world and see in conflict zones whether they actually work. And my first deployment along those lines was with Christian peacemaker teams in Palestine, specifically in the city of Hebron in 1995. I was on their inaugural peacemaker core team. And 
found it extremely impressive how ordinary people just being good humans relating to other people on a respectful level can interfere with violence. Uh, the huge gamut of ways that people interact to prevent people from committing violence that are extremely effective and have been shown to be that way, both in my personal experience and in research, both at the interpersonal level and the international level. And so I was able to volunteer on, on peace missions where into places where most people say, oh, you shouldn't go there without a gun or you shouldn't go there at all. In Haiti, after the coup there, when people were being shot just for speaking the name of President Aristide, um, in Guatemala, where the uh, many refugees from Mexico had, had uh, fled the war in Chiapas and vice versa. Uh, in Nicaragua, when we were supporting the Contras, uh, attacking Nicaraguans to, to see what those people were doing to defend themselves. Uh, and then finally, uh, over the course of the last decades, uh, people decided this is good enough stuff to pay people to do it. So there's a couple of organizations called one called Cure Violence Global, the other called the Nonviolent Peace Force that actually trains and pays people to go into conflicts areas. Uh, they've been in in countries like Sri Lanka and uh, Myanmar and Philippines and South Sudan, where I was. Uh, and again, once again, I got to work with a wonderful team of both internationals and local people who were trained to stand between opposing military camps and, and make a huge difference in that. That work has even been attempted in, in Ukraine, where Nonviolent Peace Force has a team, which is much more difficult because you can't relate to both sides easily across a 30-kilometer artillery fire zone. That's been challenging and involves mostly rescuing people and convincing people to how to keep each other safe. So it's extremely effective. When I was in Hebron, I thought, gosh, after we had a team of four, and I thought in two years we'll have a team of 40, and in eight years we'll have a team of 400 or 4,000, and we'll really begin to make a difference. The movement hasn't grown nearly as fast as I'd like it to, uh, mostly because of lack of funding and, and general knowledge about how good this stuff is. I had a friend, a Quaker from Dunedin, Christine Gibbs, who spent about four years in the, about 20 years ago, in the Hembron uh, with the Christian Peace Team, mm -hmm. uh, accompanying, mostly accompanying uh, ch Palestinian children to school because they were harassed uh, verbally and physically um, on their way to school and on their way home. And sometimes they were afraid to go. Of course, I've seen that firsthand. It's beautiful work. And in South Sudan, women going out to the bush to collect firewood would often get harassed or violently attacked or raped, uh, both by militaries out there and some reports of UN armed peacekeepers doing that. Uh, when, when we train them into women's peace teams to accompany each other and sometimes with international accompaniment, uh, there were very few cases of harassment or attacks. You were, um, did you have anything to do with the um, nuclear power plant in Ukraine? Uh, not directly. Uh, when the war broke out, those of us in the international positions for the prevention of nuclear war group 
who, by the way, brought you the the, the uh, treaties that got rid of a lot of our nuclear weapons, uh, were very concerned that here is a nuclear power plant, the largest in Europe, one of the largest in the world, six reactors sitting on the edge of a of a war zone with bombardments happening all around. And we said, if that blows, because it was a much older reactor than the one at Chernobyl. We know the accident there created a thousand square miles, 2,600 square kilometers of uh, a no live zone now. And that could be much, much larger with, with release of radiation from the much older reactor at, at uh, Zaporizhia. And so we, followed the work of the, we were inspired actually by the work of the International Atomic Energy Agency, who after about six months of hard negotiations with the Russians, sent a team of inspectors there to supervise the workers who were under enormous duress from the war and the fact that they were now in relative captivity from the Russian takeover of the plant. And they've been on the ground, unarmed civilians, protecting Europe from that nuclear disaster we thought, how can we help them? And so I worked for a year trying to form a team called the Zaporizhian Protection Team and made overtures, uh, took two additional trips to Ukraine, right up to the river across from the nuclear power plant, tried to get it on the Russian side and couldn't, came back, made another attempt to negotiate with the Russians in Washington for access and couldn't get it. So that project is, is still alive, but on hold. Uh, meanwhile, we just are so grateful to the International Atomic Energy Agency for taking the same risks that we were willing to take um, to protect uh, people you know, without weapons. Uh, another example of civilian unarmed protection. Um, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, we're really very impressed and amazed that that plan has stayed intact in two years of the war. We think that's partly due to the inspectors being there and other people around the plant insisting that that war not be conducted nearby. Well, it sounds um, insane to have a war around a nuclear power plant. <laughs> of course, wars, the war in the Ukraine is insane, I suppose. I think we think all war is insane. Yeah. That there's just so much you can do without war to preserve the things that almost everybody agrees war is supposed to protect. Freedom, prosperity, democracy, but war isn't designed to do that. War is designed to, to uh, serve a few people at the top who, who profit and benefit from war. The overwhelming majority of people, including the overwhelming majority of the business community, doesn't really benefit. We're going to have a, a music break for just a bit. Here they come marching past the houses, shiny boots and khaki blouses, stiff as the creases in their trousers, standing tall and straight and strong. And they all keep in step together, glint of steel and flash of leather, braving every kind of weather as they boldly march along. You can dismiss it as a ploy for the enlistment of the boys who'll be impressed to see the toys and play the games that can be played. And you may well prefer abstention, but I feel compelled to mention you do well to pay attention when the boys are on parade. 
your sons before they're older They'll be stronger, they'll be bolder Just the thing to make a soldier And we'll turn them into men And they'll be taught to follow orders Keep the peace and guard the borders To protect us from marauders And defend us to the end But the position they'll be filling Is to be able and be willing To be killed or do the killing When there's a price that must be paid And you may well prefer abstention But I feel compelled to mention You do well to pay attention When the boys are on parade In the pursuit of a community Of decency and unity And equal opportunity We stand prepared to fight And if there's a threat to our position From an unruly opposition Then with guns and ammunition We'll repel with all our might And we'll dehumanize and hate them Sending the troops to decimate them As in the name of all the nation All it stands for is betrayed And you may well prefer abstention But I feel compelled to mention you do well to pay attention when the boys are on parade For merely the whim or intuition of an elected politician Makes a melee with no conditions Once the monster quits the cage It's a machine that gives no quarter Dealing death and sowing slaughter Raping mothers, wives and daughters In an all-consuming rage And we may well believe we need it And we'll pay to arm and feed it But can you tell me who will lead it When the decisions must be made And you may well prefer abstention But I feel compelled to mention You do well to pay attention When the boys are on parade Some will wonder what's to fear And say that there's no danger here But there has never been a year When soldiers haven't been at war And all the evil executions And the bloody revolutions And the ultimate solutions too Have all been seen before And there is always someone scheming And sometimes at night when dreaming In the distance I hear screaming And in my heart I feel afraid And you may well prefer abstention But I feel compelled to mention You do well to pay attention When the boys are on parade Here they come marching past the houses Shiny boots and khaki blouses Stiff as the creases in their trousers Standing tall and straight and strong And is it any cause for pride That now the women march beside them Will there be wiser gods to guide them In discerning right from wrong For every step is a reminder Of the threat that lies behind If we forget the ties that bind us When the authentic game is played Abstention, but I feel compelled to mention you do well to pay attention when the boys are on parade. And as the procession passes by, consider the sight before your eyes, cause it'll be you they kill and die for if they are called to the crusade. Or you may love them and adore them, you may hate them and abhor them, but for Christ's sake, don't ignore them when the boys are on parade.
We're talking with John Raynar, and uh, he's a peace worker and uh, treasurer of World Beyond War, and he's been doing a, a tour in New Zealand with Quakers working, talking about peace and peace education. What could... We talk about protecting uh, us from nu nuclear reactors. How about climate change? How is that? How does the military affect climate change and our ability to deal with it? Well, first of all, we invite all your listeners to join our course that's about to begin called The Environment in War or War in the Environment. So World Beyond War hosts several courses each year on aspects of war and its prevention. And the one this this uh, spring is on is on uh, well, it's uh, fall here. I mean, <laughs> is on war and the environment. And in that course, you will learn all sorts of things, like the fact that the U.S. military is a larger greenhouse gas emitter and fuel user than a huge than the majority of countries on Earth uh, do. Militaries around the world are not only the biggest consumers and polluters, but they're also in their very act of preparing for war and war making are the greatest destroyers of the environment. Uh, just think of the mission is to gain what is they think is politically expedient through killing and destruction. And that includes the destruction of the environment. You know, when I think of what I saw in Ukraine, when someone blew the Karkovka Dam, uh, Millions upon millions of fish are, are now dead along those those rivers. There's landmines that were on the banks that are now strewn along the river bottom and everywhere else uh, that will cause problems forever. Um, the, the shells, and of course now the depleted uranium, permanently radioactive stuff is being strewn into the dust in areas that will cause cancers everywhere. The cluster munition bomblets that don't go off by the, the millions will take off the legs of Ukrainians, whether the Ukrainians or Russians win the war. Uh, take the legs off of children for decades to come. Uh, there's nothing more destructive to the environment and no more bigger hmm. contributor to uh, global warming than emissions by the military. There are corporations that, that come close, fuel companies and so forth that, that come close, but uh, it, it's impossible to think of solving the climate crisis or environmental degradation without ending the huge contribution the militaries make to it. In spite of the nuclear uh, treaties and so on, people are in, whenever there's a conventional war now, people are suffering radiation because of, can you talk about nuclear enriched uh, artillery a bit? You mean depleted uranium depleted, weapons? Yeah. Yeah, so they're called depleted uranium weapons because they use, they're made from nuclear material enriched uranium that had been used in nuclear reactors or in nuclear weapons that is now uh, depleted so it has uh, much less radioactivity than that that is used in in reactors uh, but still has far more than natural uranium in the ground so it's a it's a it's a radioactive source that that contaminates um it's fairly low level compared to a radiation accident from a nuclear power plant or a nuclear explosion, but it's there and it doesn't go away for centuries. 
Uh, we spread it around in, in the Balkans in our attacks on Kosovo, and now they're spreading it around Ukraine. It will cause birth defects and cancers for countless decades. It's used, of course, because it's extremely heavy uh, and it allows a military to say uh, fire a single shell into a tank and destroy it with one hit instead of three or four. And for that minimal short-term gain in, in tactical advantage, you're condemning people to, to cancer and pollution for countless decades. Doesn't seem like a good trade-off for us. Is there any move to outlaw such weapons? Uh, there's been no official treaty the weapons are not widely used compared to other weapons of war. Um, I hope somebody's working on a treaty for that somewhere. What could the U.S. and Europe have done to make the Russian invasion of Ukraine less likely? And did the issues go back to shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall? And did it involve economic as well as diplomatic and political issues? Wow, those are questions for a full webinar. But of course the issues go back before the fall of the Berlin Wall. Kiev was at one time the center of Russia. It was the first capital in Europe. Uh, invasions from the West into Russia loom large in the collective memory of the Russians. Napoleon in 1812, Hitler in 1941. These are easy points to make for, for people who uh, are, are trying to convince the Russian people to fight for their their safety and sovereignty. Uh, after collapse of the Soviet Union, oh, we could have prepared for peace rather than war. Just consider that since 1991, the U.S. has spent $16 trillion on preparations for war. $16 trillion since the collapse of the Soviet Union. What could, we, what could the U.S. in particular and Europe done to have a better, more democratic, moderate outcome in in Russia itself. Well, welcomed Russia into the European community, uh, not necessarily into NATO, but into the European community so that its economy could have integrated and if not actually joined, at least be on extremely friendly terms. And there was a lot of that going on. Pipelines were made, a lot of commerce between the two. But NATO's existence has pretty much stopped a lot of the rapprochement that could have been uh, been done with Russia. You know, when the very first Secretary General, General Ismay, in the early 1950s, said the purpose of NATO was to keep Germany down, the, the U.S. in, and Russia out of Europe. And it certainly has done that. Um, you know, Boris Yeltsin and Putin both made overtures to think about joining NATO or the European Union, and these were rebuffed. And George Cannon and other statesmen and military people predicted that if NATO expanded and if Russia was not welcomed into the common European collective economic and, and culture, that, Russia, that war was almost inevitable and almost certainly would happen in Ukraine. That was predicted all through the 1990s. And so simply holding Russia out, not honoring their legitimate needs for security, um, in the world beyond war, website, we have a map of all the military bases that the U.S. has in around the world. And if you look at all the ones through the Middle East and Europe, it looks like Russia is totally surrounded. 
And if such a map of Russian bases were around the U.S., we just have to think of how we would feel about that. So we have to take legitimate security concerns into account. And having done that, and Putin put them out in the in the uh, Minsk Accords, you know, before the war started, um, that NATO would not expand into Ukraine under any circumstances, and other guarantees for Russian security could have prevented this war. Many, many people have made this point, many smart diplomats and military people. Yet we decided not to do that. And after the war started, as, as uh, our Secretary of Defense said, we've got to weaken Russia to the point where they can never do this again. And it's all about putting Russia down, this war. It could have ended early in the, early in the first month, uh, that both France and Turkey had had done negotiations in Istanbul to to bring the war to an early closure, and Boris Yeltsin, uh, Boris uh, Johnson, appeared on the first public figure on the streets of Ukraine uh, to be out in the open when the bombing slowed down a bit, and all of a sudden there was no more talk of peace, and hasn't been any from our side since, and the Ukrainians are the ones that suffer. Do you think the Russians would now accept peace without uh, taking and holding Ukraine territory? I'm not talking about the Crimea. I'm talking about uh, inside Ukraine now. Uh, clarify that a little bit. Would they agree to peace with without taking how much territory? Without holding Ukrainian territory. I'm not I'm not including Crimea in that question. Um, th that's a tough question. Only the Russians could answer. I think we ought to be making great diplomatic efforts to find out the answer to that. I mean, if I were Russia, having lost this much material and and spent this much time gaining gaining land in Crimea uh, in uh, eastern Ukraine, I would not be likely to give it up without getting something really good in return. And I can imagine what that would be, all kinds of economic benefits, relief of all sanctions, welcoming into the economic boom of the world. Uh, I can imagine negotiating for things, um, withdrawing NATO bases and all our nuclear weapons from Europe. There's lots of things that could give Putin a victory in front of his people and guarantee their safety, saying, look, I got the Americans to take the nuclear weapons away. I got no NATO in Ukraine. Um, that could end the war and maybe get a lot of Ukraine territory back to Ukraine. But I think stopping now and letting the part the 80% of Ukraine that still remains in Ukraine would benefit the Ukrainian people far more than than continuing to what looks like a 1914 trench warfare stalemate with endless slaughter, endless pollution, endless destruction of Ukraine. Now, it's not our decision to make, it is our decision whether to continue fueling the war with unlimited amounts of destruction and weapons. And it's also, we have a say as to whether we want to increase the possibility that we're all going to die in a nuclear holocaust because we keep poking a country with 7,000 nuclear weapons, at least 1,000 of them on hair trigger alert that can do us in in the next few hours if Putin chooses is a risk as an American I don't want to take. It's difficult enough to prevent international disagreements from evolving into violence, but it's much more difficult once uh, 
a large determination invades their neighbor. But you're, you're positive that we could make some headway. Of course, you can always make headway. All wars come to an end. All of them. <laughs> that you can count on. How long it takes. You know, Europe had its 100 years war. We're at, what, 75 and without an end to the Korean conflict. Uh, they can go a long time. It's a decision whether to continue them or stop them. The answer, in my mind, is always a ceasefire. And then begin negotiations. Because as long as people are actively being killed, human beings just don't act well when they're under fire. Fear is not the way to get the best behavior out of most human beings, especially your enemies. And there, so there have been books, stopping the killing is always the first step. There have been um, books and statements by New Zealanders suggesting that we should follow Costa Rica's example and um, not depend on our military for defense. That we should. You talking about New Zealand? Yeah. Well, sure. Well, you know, when when after looking at all the numbers in the U.S., when I look at New Zealand's military, it consists of about ten thousand people, and in Dunedin, I, I hope people come to the, the talks there. We'll, we'll interact with with uh, the the Peace Study Center there, and Professor Jackson, who's just written this book, Abolishing the Military, not saying we ought to do it, but it ought to be on the table for discussion, because your 10,000 troops are not going to stop an invasion from anybody. But the bigger question is, is that even a much of a threat compared to all the other threats like environmental collapse and wealth inequality and and pandemics and so forth, that we need to start turning our resources, both brain power and money, toward fixing things that actually threaten us rather than creating enemies to threaten us in the future. So yes, I think that's an excellent question. And look at Costa Rica's example. They haven't had an army since 1949. There are 22 other countries with no official military. None of them have been invaded since 1949. Why wouldn't that be a good example to at least consider? We've had very little leadership on either climate change or peace from national leaders. The leadership we seem to have gotten was from uh, Guterres, the UN Secretary, and Pope Francis. You want to comment on, on this? Well, even, even those leaders, if you notice, have not been able to make peace despite their strong statements. It's good to have them because there are people that follow and, and like those leaders, and, and I like those leaders. But my experience Peace does not come about until people, the grassroots, decide they, to demand it. You know, our, our President Eisenhower once said that one of these days, the governments of the world are going to have to get out of the way and let people have the peace they demand. And when I see the successes in the, well, take the nuclear free zone that New Zealanders established in 1985, that didn't come from the top levels of government. That came from people pushing from the ground to more or less force the government or induce the government to do it, the will of the people. And, and that's what we've got to do now to end war. The governments will never do it. The governments are essentially, I certainly in the United States, I don't know as much about yours, but in the United States, they're in the pay of corporations. There are three defense companies, defense, I have to stop using that word, war making, weapons making, 
company lobbyists on Capitol Hill, three of them for every person in our Congress. And they're there every single day making sure these guys vote for war. It, it's huge. And we've got to stop that. And it will stop when people from the bottom boycott those countries, protest those countries, demand that everybody take their investments, their retirement accounts, and the city investments like we did in Burlington, Vermont. We got the city to say we will not put any of our investment money into weapons manufacturers. And as soon as enough cities do that, they will stop making weapons and do something much more useful for the planet. But it's a grassroots movement. And that's what we at World Beyond War consider. We're just educating people around the world and giving them opportunities to take actions. Um, the latest web page on our website at worldbeyondwar.org is a page about AUKUS, the Australian-US-UK treaty, um, now to try to contain China. New Zealand's going to have to make a choice whether to support that or not, remain neutral, or get involved in this mm. global struggle that I know my government desperately wants to confront China, even if it means war. Oh, Terrifying thought watch my Congress work back home. A lot of New Zealanders, including some people from, the, from Otago, including one of the uh, political science professors, um, Robert Patman, says that um, joining that alliance, joining ARCUS, uh, would uh, destroy our independent foreign policy and also end up destroying the nuclear-free policy. Almost certainly. You know, Australia was part of that nuclear-free zone, but look what they're doing. They just agreed to buy nuclear submarines and allow them into Australia, and that will require allowing Americans and American military bases to be set up to support those. It's a long-term project. These things take decades to come online. Huge amounts of money for Australia. And all they're doing is giving China another reason to arm itself to build newer, more nuclear weapons that's not going to end well for any of us. So New Zealand can play a very strong part in refusing to be part of that and use its diplomatic and economic capacity to induce peace throughout the Pacific, to maintain neutrality, and to keep pushing the world, these larger powers, back to respecting international law. We have great treaties, the law of the seas, we have the International Criminal Court, the International Court of Justice, all which can be used to put limits on people doing otherwise really bad stuff to each other. Um, are they perfect? Do they have good enforcement mechanisms? No, but they have enormous weight in determining how most of the world thinks. And ultimately, stronger than any military force is whether the majority of people support that military force or demand another way. Isn't it clear that if we're going to actually deal with climate change, that we actually have to, to spend our effort and money not in the military, but in um, dealing with climate change and trying to, to stop using carbon, not only in the military, but in all of energy, and in finding values of how to live with less happily. I mean, we can't do that if we're in a military arms race, can we? No. Once, once people are sold fear, once they're told to be fearful of an enemy, often imagined, 
then it's very hard to turn their attention to anything else. I have a, a, a good friend who's a military veteran has written a series of books on the art of waging peace. And he, he reminds us that the, those primal human fear is an attack by another human being. And politicians are just brilliant at creating fear in people, creating enemies for us. And our greatest challenge is to overcome the education that we are helpless, that the governments have to make our decisions for us. No government can stand without the consent of its people. And we have to overcome the education that says obedience is the only thing that matters. We had a wonderful interview from your former foreign minister of uh, foreign affairs and trade minister, um, uh, Nananya Mahuta. Yes, that's right. And what we asked, what we asked her what, how she raised her children to keep these wonderful values of, uh, you know, indigenous values, which are also Quaker and more universal values, but they, they really emphasizing them in Maori culture now of interconnectedness and of, of hospitality and trust. And she said, this is what we need in foreign affairs. And I thought, wow, what a difference between what I see in, in my country. But we asked her what, how she raised her children. She said, I raised them not to be followers. See, I was raised that obedience to church and obedience to the government was the most important thing in life. And while those are important at a certain level, when the government goes from, from protecting its people to frightening them and to get them to participate in hurting other people, that's when ordinary people have to draw the line and say, no, I won't participate in that. We have great hope at World Beyond War because we've seen history where, like war, slavery started probably about 10,000 years ago, maybe a little later, just a small part of the time we've been on Earth. And it started at the same time, and everybody thought it was absolutely inevitable, like they think war is inevitable now. Obviously, some people are superior to others. Otherwise, they wouldn't be stronger and able to capture them and put them in slavery. The Bible says slave is kind of a normal condition. And then in the 19th century, over the course of less than 100 years, almost all the nations of the world said, we're not going to play that game anymore. We're not going to keep slaves. Did it eliminate slavery? No. There are probably as many slaves now as there were in 1860, but a much tinier percentage of the population, and nobody approves of it officially. And that's huge. And there's no reason in the world we can't do that with war. What if they gave a war and nobody came? Just stop paying for it, divest from it, refuse to vote for it, complain when your politicians vote for it, and refuse to participate. Do you feel like the United Nations has a role to play in this? Well, the United Nations is a pretty flawed organization. Uh, mostly because of some its inability to stick to its own principles and the inherent advantage given to the five winners of World War II have the veto in the Security Council. So there are countless examples, especially of Russia and the United States, vetoing otherwise good things, other sanctions, other ways to end war because they wanted to be part of that war. And there's no bigger example now than the situation in, in uh, both Ukraine and Gaza where a superpower voted against total sanctions at the Security Council level. 
So can the General Assembly overrun that? I have to leave that to UN experts. We know the United Nations needs reform, but we don't want to eliminate it because it's the only international forum and it's done a lot of good work in its peacekeeping missions, its diplomacy. It's just speaking out for the world as a people instead of the toless, totally otherwise lawless international arena. So we don't want to get rid of it. It's kind of like uh, the a lot of revolutions, right? You think of the Arab Spring and uprising. They were incredible people power revolutions with very little bloodshed. And yet, in so many cases, they didn't have a government to replace the government they they wanted to overthrow. And so you really want to make sure you have something in place before you destroy what you have. And reforming or even replacing the United Nations can and should be done, but very slowly and very carefully. And with the input of more grassroots people than corporate running governments. How can we enforce international law? Because obviously uh, the two major powers have uh, broken international law in Iraq and Ukraine and many other places in South America. Well, the best example we have right now is the ongoing situation in Gaza, right? Because you have uh, what looks like to most people, if you watch Al Jazeera or TikTok, um, instead of censored media in the West, you see an ongoing slaughter of civilians in numbers that exceed anything since the Korean War, as near as I can tell. You know, I, I recently looked at, at uh, Ukraine statistics from the UN. In two years of war, the Russians have killed maybe 10,000 civilians, according to the UN. And when I was on the front lines, I was, there was damage, there was fear, but the cities were pretty unscathed uh, physically. Lots of broken windows, some bomb buildings, but for the most part, not terrible. Nothing like you see in Gaza. Now, Mariupol and Bakhmut, they're different because both armies fought bitterly there and both sides destroyed the thing. Gaza is different because it's the heaviest concentration of ordnance, these 2,000 pound bombs being dropped on civilian infrastructure because the military in Gaza has nowhere to operate except underground and around the civilian structures. That's used as an excuse to destroy civilian populations in a way that has not been done since the bombings in Korea, I would say. And so it's a horrific thing. And we have, it looks like a genocide to a lot of people. Now it's not up for you or me to decide whether it's genocide. Uh, the United States and Israel say, oh, no, a hint of genocide here. Not even a hint. It's a ridiculous charge. Well, it's not their business to decide whether it's genocide. After World War II and the Holocaust, people said, how can we prevent this? Oh, we'll create experts in genocide. We will create a court, the International Court of Justice and the Geneva Conventions to define what genocide is and let the judges decide. And finally, after three months, South Africa came forward and said, we want you to rule as whether this is genocide. We think it is. Here's our 84 pages of detailed documentation think, saying why we think it is. Please rule on this. And within a week or so, the International the Court of Justice came back with a ruling. This does look too much like genocide. We'll, we will look at it as such. Meanwhile, here's the things we think you're doing that could be. Stop them immediately. Now you say, well, Israel hasn't stopped it at all. But the effect is huge. So when I go now to our State Department, to our president, who says this is not genocide, instead of saying, well, we just have a difference of opinion, 
I can say, oh, wait a minute. It's not your job to tell us whether this is genocide. It's the court's job. And they're saying it does look like genocide. And that gives enormous strength to the grassroots movement that's going to need to stop this nonsense. And it gives strength to all the people around the world and their demonstrations here. Look how far you are away in, in New Zealand here. And we'll go to a demonstration to just to try to stop the violence in Gaza this afternoon. So it's everywhere through the world. I've been in in two demonstrations in D.C. among countless smaller ones that had between 150 and 300,000 people at them with almost no news coverage. We got more news coverage from Al Jazeera than we did from CNN or MSNBC. So there's this cloak of, of protecting the U.S. government's policy by the media that only grassroots movements can overcome. Is this part of what you would consider building and nurturing a culture of peace? Being anti-war and pro-peace is a, is a, is a two-pronged process. In general, human beings respond to positive calls or po calls to positive behavior much more quickly and better than they do to tell them to stop doing something. War is very much an exception to that. Because the war culture is so infiltrated in absolutely every other aspect of Western culture and many other cultures, that I don't think it's meaningful to say you're for peace unless you're also against war. We've learned in our 10 years experience at World Beyond War that 90% of people who identify as part of the peace movement believe in war in some fashion. They take sides in war, they decide which weapon systems are good and which weapon systems are bad. And we think that's very counterproductive and we'll never get peace that way. Because war is the biggest obstacle to peace and the belief that we need war is the single biggest obstacle to peace. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So you will be speaking at the Burns Lecture Theater at Otago University on the at five fifteen Thursday the twenty ninth. So yes, about uh, forward uh, to that. That's, that's a week away. Yes, very much looking forward. I hope your listeners will come. Uh, we have, hope to have an exciting discussion, and I want to re really get some feedback from how. New Zealanders managed to declare themselves nuclear-free despite U.S. pressure. I'd like feedback on what you you uh, think about what the New Zealand Defense Force can add or subtract to world peace and to the defense and security of New Zealand. And we'll have some great discussions there. I really hope people will attend. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Any further thoughts in the next couple of minutes? about you know, what we can do as, as people. Yes, thank you for that, that great question. Yes, my, my, my appeal would be to go inward to wherever you find your, your strength of spirit and your longing for peace and ask yourself, why do I feel helpless? Why do I feel like I can't make a difference? Who in my lifetime has convinced me I'm too small? And, and I've heard this a couple of times and said it myself in our talks here. If you think you can't make a difference, spend the, because you're insignificant, spend a night in a tent with a mosquito, I think the Dalai Lama said. Uh, we can make a difference. We made a huge difference. I'm still an activist because we physicians talked about nuclear weapons and their threats in the 1980s, and we got rid of 80% of nuclear weapons. If we got rid of 80% of them, we can get rid of the rest. And with similar activity, we can get rid of war as a human institution. So don't give up on that. 
And if you're looking for anything to do, you will not find a richer website than worldbeyondwar.org. You could spend days just looking through everything we're doing. A carousel comes up right at front of our latest activities, one of which is AUKUS. The other is our environment and war course. You will find countless things to do on that website, starting with signing our Declaration of Peace, which simply says, in many words, all the bad things about war and why we think it's a dumb idea and that we will work nonviolently to overcome it and create a just and sustainable peace. So thank you for listening. I hope to see you on the 29th. Blessings. Well, thanks a lot, John. It was good to discuss this with you, and it's um, a hopeful message, uh, which we really need right now. Thank you, Mark. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.